God accomplishes His work in this day and age. And so we're going to look at that in the Scriptures. Uh, we've already looked and, and turned to Luke 16. That's the text we're looking at. 18 different times in the Bible, in our Bible, if you, we, have, we use the King James Version. Uh, I'm not sure what the other versions are, but there are 18 times the word steward or stewardship is used in the Scriptures in our, in our English. Um, six in the Old Testament, 12 in the New Testament. And five of those times is here in Luke chapter 16. So this is a, in fact, when, it, when English started coming into being and they started translating from Latin or from Greek and from Hebrew, uh, and they started translating into English, um, they would use various words. And um, the word stewardship really has its roots in the 16th century. So that would be 1500s. Remember how that goes? 16th century is the 1500s. Uh, and it was William Tyndale, long before um, the Great Bible, before the Bishop's Bible, before the King James Bible, and all the other versions, uh, William Tyndale was the first one to use this word stewardship. And it really, um, it was a concept that was common in his day. So if you, if you talk to any Christian, if you could learn their language, uh, any Christian before that, before the 1500s, and you said to them, hey, what's your thought on stewardship? They'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Because stewardship really came about in the 1500s, or before that, but it came into the English Bible that late in life. So it's, it's not, you know, it wasn't a first century concept, though all these times that are translated stewardship, all 18 times, come from different Hebrew and Greek words. So various words were used, and so the concept, what we think of as stewardship today, though it had a different word, words, it was still something that was in play in the first century church. So we're going to look at that. And uh, Luke 16, as I said, five times you see this word steward. We began this last Sunday, so some of this is going to be reviewed real quickly. Uh, last Sunday we looked at what is a steward. And I just gave you some history of that. What I want to do real quickly is share with you some of the other English words that were translated, that ended up being translated steward. But when they first started translating into English, they used other words. For example, um, John Wycliffe in um, the 1300s, 13, he died in 1395. Uh, he, trans he was the first one to translate the whole English Bible. But it was from the Latin, which was the only language then. So he translated it, and um, he translated this text that we see the word steward over and over again. He translated it with the word bailiff. You've heard of that word, right? A bailiff or bailiff ship. So instead of, when you see Stuart here, Wycliffe, in his early English translation, translated it bailiff or bailiff ship. What is a bailiff? Here's a definition of a bailiff. A bailiff was a subordinate administrative or judicial officer of the English crown. Uh, and early on, when you study that word bailiff, we, we, I think you'd agree with me, when we think of bailiff, we totally think courtroom, don't we? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's how we limit that word. 
But the original idea of the bailiff was an officer on a ship that was in charge of the provisions and the meals. And you know how we talk today about posting bail? Well, the root of that term bail, uh, it was bond, it's bond money, and it says it's in late uh, 15th century, a sense that apparently developed from, this was what bail was back, back in the day, how it started. It was a temporary release of an arrested person from jail into the custody of another person who gives security for the future appearance at a trial. So this is how this idea of bail was more, the bailiff in that case, was the person that would post the bail so the prisoner could be released and they'd say, I'm going to make sure he comes back for the trial. I'm, he's going to be under my care. And so I'm going to put down this money and I will take care of him till the trial. That's the idea. Here's other terms that were used. Um, in Genesis 15.2 and in Matthew 28, John Wycliffe used the word proc procurator or procurator which was an, a person that was authorized to act for another person. See all these different terms. If you understand stewardship, that's what it is, right? In Genesis 43, 19, Wycliffe and others used the word dispenser. A dispenser is someone who dispenses, deals out, bestows, or administers. Other terms that speak of um, stewardship, it, it, management is really what it is. So there's all these words that let us know as Christians that we are not the owners. You look at all the different places that the word stewardship is used in Scripture, and we realize that none of it is ours. We are simply managing God's assets. He's lending it to us. But they, it really does not belong to us. Here's a definition I've used over the years of what a steward is and his job description. This comes from a book written by an American pastor called The Treasure Principle. Uh, the best definition I've heard. He says, a steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It is his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. Now, here's why I say this. For every Christian, and this is what I focused on last week, we've got to come to realize that everything in our realm belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. We're not just talking about our money. We're talking about our, our possessions, our vehicles, our dwelling place, our family, everything belongs to God. And we are just managers. And this is a new concept for some people. I remember when I first came to know the Lord, I had no idea what stewardship was. I, I kind of looked at it the way the world did. This is my money. My bank account, I worked every hour for the money, that, and there wasn't much, in that bank account. But I worked for it, you know, and that idea. That um, it's mine. That's the way the world looks. But for the Christian, we got to realize, you know what? It's not mine. My wife, my children, not mine. God's. My house, my car, my, my, my is really God, God, God's. 
Have you ever seen that? Have you ever looked at it that way? Because it might be that you need to have a paradigm shift and change your thinking to realize that, you know what? Everything has been given to me. Remember Corinthians? We looked at this last week. What do you have? This is my paraphrase. What do you have that you didn't receive? Implication, nothing. God gave it all. Now, if you received it, why do you boast or glory as, or, or flaunt as if you didn't receive it? In other words, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. That kind of, a month, that kind of an attitude is about as anti-stewardship as you can get. God owns it all. Now, what we want to talk about today is, just as in the Old Testament, and we looked at this, we're not going to go to this first, but let me refer to it in case you're, you weren't here last week. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 25 lays out the way the Old Testament worked with the, the temple and tabernacle system, and it was this. The entire Levite tribe had no inheritance of all the things that all the other tribes got. No land, no property, no possessions. What they had to do is they were in charge of the tabernacle, the worship service, all the things that had to do with ministry back then. And the way they lived was all the other tribes, their first fruits, the first 10% of their increase, they had to, by faith, give to God. Now, this is the key about Numbers 18.24. It may have looked like they were giving to the Levites and the, the priests and you know all that, but they were giving it to God. And then according to Numbers 18.24, and then it was God who designated that to the Levites. That's how they, that's how they lived. And that's clearly uh, brought out in there. Now, real quickly, there were times, because it was uh, you know, a free will offering, it was voluntary, they didn't have a, a whole tribe that was uh, in charge of uh, you know, the, um, the police or the the people that would go around and say, you didn't give your tithe. you got to give your tithe or you're going to prison. They didn't do that. It was totally free will. So if during those times when Israel got sidetracked and didn't realize it, and God had already told them in Leviticus 27.30, the first fruits, the tithes belong to me, God says. And, and that's why God could then give that to the Levites. It was totally to test their understanding of whether they thought it was their stuff or God's stuff. And when they, when they got away from the Lord, they got far from God, they started living like it was their stuff. And now we see this principle, back up, when they would not give God that first 10%, you know how God viewed it? He, long, uh, one of the last Old Testament prophets, Malachi, comes along and it was at a time of great apostasy. They were not putting God first at all. And so Malachi is interesting. He comes along and he kind of makes some accusations of, the, of the, peop, the people of God, the Jews. And he'd say, will, will a person do this? He, he accuses them of something. And they say, how have we done this? And in chapter 5, I believe it is, Malachi, no, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, Malachi says, will a man rob God? That's a preposterous thought, isn't it? Can you imagine stealing from God? How does that work? Does he have a heavenly vault? You know, I mean, really? Well, if, if, if you look at the Old Testament now, the first fruits, the tithe, 
belonged to the Lord. And when they didn't get, when they didn't give it to the Lord, that's in fact that's what he said. Will a man rob God? And they're like, oh, how could we, we never did that? And then he says, Yet ye have robbed me. And they said, Wherein have we robbed thee? What are you talking about? And he says, In tithes and offerings. You stop seeing me as the owner. That, that's the real charge. They, they start taking control of their life. They start worshiping false gods. They had no more time for Yahweh. And now God is saying, you're robbing me. That's pretty serious. Now, let's, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's fast forward now to the New Testament. We're no longer under the law. Uh, but we still have ministry, and it's interesting that when Paul is teaching in, um, in this text, also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about the widows that are neglected and how you have to give honor or financially support the widows, and then he starts talking about ministry, and he brings out, in 1 Timothy 5, he brings out some of the things we're going to look at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he, in fact, in First uh, Timothy five, he brings he quotes this Old Testament principle in Deuteronomy twenty five four. Look, look at look at First Corinthians nine and verse nine. He says, "For it is written in the law of Moses." Now, now Paul is defending his right to receive offerings for ministry and talking about supporting the support because he needs to live, he needs to eat. He needs to pay rent or wherever he's staying at. He needs, he needs income. And he is writing, and he, he goes back into the Old Testament and brings out some principles. Look again at verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care of oxen? Even so hath the Lord... And oh, now jump down to... Um, you know what? Now jump down to verse 11. He gets real specific here. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 11. He says, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, and he has. He preached to them, he ministered to them, he taught them the scriptures. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap carnal things? Carnal things? Material things? Like money or provisions or food, that kind of thing? Is it? And the implication is no. If others be partaker of the partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer or allow all things lest we should hinder the gospel. Here's what he's doing. He's bringing out a principle, and he's about ready to quote Jesus. In fact, let's look at this. Do ye not know, verse 13, that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple. He's talking about the Levites. How did they live? How did they eat? What, how did they survive? They did it by getting remunerated for their temple work. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar? They would actually eat the offerings. That's how they survived. They didn't have side jobs. Now, look at verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In other words, those who preach the gospel, 
should be able to make that their means of support. Now it goes back to this principle. And real quickly again, look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 9, 9. For many years, I misinterpreted this. I heard a teacher that I thought was explaining it using this idea that in the Bible there is, in every text, there is one interpretation but many applications. And he went to this text to say how God is taking a, a text that applies to the oxes, oxen, the cattle, and then, he, and then he, now he's applying it, taking it out of that context and applying it to ministers. And, and I took that application and run with it. And, uh, you know... Uh, when it comes to Bible interpretation, you and I can never be too careful. And my attitude has become, because I grew up in a totally different religion, totally different denomination, and somebody came to me presenting what they claim was the gospel, and it wasn't what I grew up hearing, and I've learned and I'm continuing to learn that um, it's so easy to be deceived. Remember, the nature of deception is you don't know it's happening to you. So now I've learned, and I'm still learning, to check everything. If I think the Bible's saying one thing, by the way, the Bible's only saying one thing. The rightly interpreted, the Bible doesn't mean a million different things. And when somebody takes that laissez-faire attitude, that's pretty dangerous. Cults do that. You know, hey, this is how I interpret it. No, it only says one thing. Our job is to find out what does it really mean. And so I, I remember reading somewhere, someone criticizing the teacher that I was thought was applying it right. He said, this guy tends to have wooden interpretations. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I began to study it, and I began to realize what this text is talking about. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 9, he is quoting, look at verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. So again, he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, or 4, which says this, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn. Right? Wow, surprising. So what's he saying? Is Paul taking an Old Testament concept that was meant for the welfare of an ox and now applying it totally out of that realm or is there something else to it? And the more I've studied it, I've come to realize that this is not, and I'm going to quote from a, a paper that somebody did a paper on this. This is not, Deuteronomy 25, this quote, is not a humanitarian law for the ox, but rather a civil law to take care of someone's property. See, here's the idea. If you and I owned oxes, and we were going to have Somebody, you know, we're going to have these oxes plowing our field. If there are oxes, we're going to let them eat the corn, right? Because we have to feed them anyway. And so it would not make sense to muzzle the ox when your ox, when he's doing the corn. But if you, and this was apparently very common, if you rented out some ox, get someone else's ox, here's apparently what some people would do. They would then muzzle the ox that treads out the corn so they would not lose that. See, it makes if, if it's your own ox, it would make no sense to muzzle them because you're going to have to feed them anyway. But if you're taking someone else's ox, and this is where this wall came in, uh, 
The law seeks to protect the interest of the owner of the ox. And now he's using this principle to talk about the person who deserves remuneration for his work. And he's pulling it out of this Old Testament concept of how the Levites got supported. And now again, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 9. Or excuse me, 9, um, verse 14. He just said everything about, you know, they that live of the gospel. He's talking about financial remuneration for the ministers of a church. And then he says in verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel or live off of the means that are made by preaching the gospel is the idea. When did the Lord ordain that? What do you mean the Lord ordained? Well, now we go. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 10. Because this is what Paul was talking about. Matthew chapter 10. He is commissioning his disciples to go out now and preach the gospel. To preach the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom. And he's, Matthew chapter 10, he's giving them some instructions. And in verse 9, he says... Heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come unto you. Um... Oh. Are you okay? Thank you, Bill. I just looked up at Bill, and Bill was like totally lost. And I'm like, I think I just read the wrong verse. And then I look at all you, and you have the same look that Bill did. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Is that why you were confused? Okay. Everyone, can I go on record that this is the first time I've ever done that? No, I can't. All right. Matthew chapter 10. All right, now we're, look at verse 9. Matthew 10, 9. He's sending off his disciples in in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 9. He says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. He's saying, don't bring any money. What? Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in in your purse, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. What? You want to go without... He's basically saying... Go out there without supplies. No food, no clothes, no money. Just go out there. What? And then this is where he is ordaining this concept. He says, For the workman is worthy of his meat. Meat is an old English word for food. That's, you can interpret it that way. It's The workman is worthy of his food. By the way, the same thing is in, math, in Luke chapter 10. He quotes this same thing. The laborer is worthy of his hire. And in both places, he's talking about the preacher of the gospel. The workman is worthy of his meat. He is taking this concept out of how God did ministry in the Old Testament, and he's carrying it, he even quotes it, and he's carrying it now into the New Testament. Let me read a comment from a a preacher of old, Adam Clark, or excuse me, Albert Barnes. He made this statement about this phrase, the workman is worthy of his meat or his food. This implies 
that they were to expect a proper supply for their needs from those who were benefited. They were not to make bargain and sale of the power of working miracles. In other words, they weren't to set up shop and say, you know, 100 bucks for anyone that wants to get healed, anybody that wants to hear a message, they weren't to do that. Uh, but they were to expect competent support from preaching the gospel. And that not merely as a gift, but because they were worthy of it and had a right to it. It's the same idea. In other words, God is saying, I am going to supply the needs, I'm going to meet the needs of the New Testament ministry and ministers by remuneration for what they do. It's the same concept as the tithe from the, you know, belong to the Levites. And now God is saying, I'm going to provide for ministers through the free will giving of his people. So, that's what we're managing. We are managing, remember, we're not talking, that stewardship is just management. And I want to go back to this idea that God owns it all. And the first two Sundays we talked about offerings. That's what is over and above. That's when you give to missions. That's when you give to help your brother or sister in need. First, remember the idea of the cup that's overflowing. First, God meets your needs through your income, your provision for what he provides. And then when it overflows, that's the extra. But that first part is where it seems, it was definitely in the Old Testament, it seems in the New Testament as well, that we are, we give to the ministry as God has prospered us. It's a phrase that's used in Corinthians of the offering that they took. In other words, God doesn't expect us all to give the same thing. It's just however God provides, that's what the tithe is. If, if you don't make much, God doesn't expect, God, God doesn't expect much. He, he expects a little because he, it's just, it's a stewardship you're just when we give back the first fruits, whatever we give back initially, part of our tithe to the to the church, it's just showing that God, we believe you own it all. He goes on. Uh, they were. Oh, I already read that. All right, let's go back. Let's go now to Luke chapter one, sixteen. Luke sixteen. First, what is a steward? Uh, it's a manager, basically. Remember that steward is a relatively newer term. Stewardship is just management. And, and everything we own, you know, we've done stewardship series that aren't just about money, but they're about our possessions, they're about our health, they're about our marriage, they're about our families. Everything we have belongs to God. Now, look at Luke 16 and verse 1. Remember, this is the first time uh, that William Tyndale used the word steward. And... In verse 1, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, that's the word bailiff that Wycliffe used in the 1300s, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called unto him and said unto him, How is it I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy, Wycliffe said bailiffship, Tyndale said stewardship, that thou mayest no longer be a steward. In our last minutes, I want to look at two passages, if we have time, that it seems when God's people got distracted and they, they stopped looking at their money as, as God's, they started looking at it as their own, they had a real hard time letting go of anything. 
Yeah, I remember the first time I heard about tithing. Uh, I was not, I, I grew up in religion, but, you know, we just put a $20, buck, $20 in the, here and there. And I remember when someone presented the concept of tithing. Tithing is 10%. It's like, what? What are you talking about? If you don't see yourself as a steward, you're not ready to give to the church or anybody. And you've got to get to that point. Or you're going to have the wrong attitude. So when the offering comes around, if you think you're given to Pastor Lion or to, you know, I'm given whatever to pay for the rent here at this address, um, and you don't understand, it's not, remember the Levites? The people gave to the Lord, and then the Lord gave to the Levites. That same idea is, seems to be here. The workman is worthy of his hire, is that we give to God, and then God supplies the needs for the ministry. And if you don't see it that way, you don't give. Honestly, we, it's not, we don't want, when the offering goes around, we don't want you to feel any obligation because you have to understand the whole concept of stewardship because God loves a cheerful giver. That means our hearts are right because we understand. He does not want a reluctant giver. So, real quick, two times. Let's, let's jump into Second Chronicles 31. 2 Chronicles 31. Two times in the Old Testament... The entire nation of Israel stopped giving a tithe. Now remember, who did the tithe go to? Well, it went to God, but then God designated it to the Levites. That's how they survived. So if the, all the tribes stopped giving their first fruits, they stopped seeing themselves as stewards, what tribe would suffer the most? The Levites. And that's exactly what happened. 2 Chronicles 31, verse 4. This is King Hezekiah. This is a time of great revival where they needed the revival. Moreover, he, Hezekiah, commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 6, they started bringing all the tithe. And all of the, the first, in other words, they gave a tenth of the oxen, tenth of the sheep, all the holy things. They gave them to God. And then God gave them to the Levites. But look at that phrase in verse 4. To give a portion of the priests and the Levites, that was the tithe, that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. The word encouraged is interesting. It is not, this is what this text is not saying. It's not saying that the people weren't giving enough and so the priests, the Levites, were really discouraged. They were doing the work of the of the law and the, the tabernacle and all that, but they, they, they were discouraged because of it. The word encouraged is from an old idea. It literally means to grow firm or to strengthen. And the idea of this term is to stick fast or to devote themselves. Here's what was happening. Because God's people were not giving their first fruits, the Levites had to go out on the fields and earn their own keep, which meant that they were taken away from the work of the ministry of the tabernacle. Real quickly, let's look at another place. Uh, you know what? Numbers 13, um, verses, excuse me, Nehemiah 13, verses 10 and 12 is the same idea. So let's just park. We'll look at this Second, second Chronicles 1 as an example. And so the idea is that they weren't getting their needs met. 
And so they couldn't do the work of the tabernacle. And so ministry was not taking place. And they had to go out and do their own fields to, to live. And when revival came, all God's people understand, we're robbing God. We're taking God. We've got to give this back to the Lord in the temple worship. And then they were able to come back and be supplied. And the same idea seems to apply today. We have today something called tent-making ministry. A lot of pastors have to do tent-making. Some initially, when they start a church, if the church isn't big enough and they're not able to support it, uh, they'll, they'll do a tent-making. And that is taken from the Apostle Paul, who um, in the beginning, when he would start churches, in some cities he would go to, he would not accept an offering. It was mostly where churches were first being planted, like Thessalonica and Corinth. Thessalonica and Corinth, he would not receive any offering for them. But in other places, like, like in Macedonia, the church of Philippi, he would collect offering. In fact, that's why he was writing in that 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to tell them, it wouldn't be wrong if I took an offering from you and he was trying to teach them, but he didn't do that because he didn't. they were young in the Lord. But those other churches in Macedonia, he would take income off of his ministry. And he was a tent maker, according to Acts 18 and verse 3, just like Aquila and Priscilla. And today, sometimes churches, while they're young, cannot afford to support minister or their ministers. Uh, a guy got a guy I know, one of my classmates from high school, got saved after high school, and he is now a pastor in New Holland, Pennsylvania, and he has he has a tent making ministry. In other words, the church isn't at a point where they can support him full time, so he is a painter on the side. That's his tent making. And uh, this guy, he's a good preacher, and I I could see you know there's certain guys that I listen to him. I'm like, I couldn't imagine that guy being my pastor, but. This guy, Mark, I could see myself putting under his ministry. He's a great expounder of the Word of God. And it breaks my heart that he, you know, I'm, I've been praying for him that the church would get on board and understand, you know, that we don't have him full time because he's out there painting. We need to support him. We need to, you know, they that live of the gospel, they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. You pray for my friend Mark. And when I find out that he's full time in ministry and he doesn't need to be painting houses and all, that's a great thing because he's, he's valuable. People will come to him for ministry and all that. So here's the concept. The New Testament ministry, very much like the Old Testament ministry, God funds it through the tithes of his people, the first fruits. That belongs to God. And that's how, I want to tell you something. It's amazing. We've been here for 31 plus years. And it's been relatively a handful of people, from what I'm told, from our, our treasurer, it's really a smaller number of people that just tithe that enabled to me to just devote myself completely to the ministry. If I, if I didn't do that, I'd probably work in a restaurant. That's where I've worked. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd be working at Chick-fil-A or, or one of these other ones. And, you know, but because, because of faithful people here who give their first fruits to God, and then the church gives it to support their pastor. Uh, if people were not giving, if we did not have those people, those faithful people to give their tithing, 
with that right philosophy, I wouldn't have been able to do what I've been doing for three decades. It's amazing. Stewardship, again, I want you to think of it, since that's a newer concept, I want you to think of it as management. I close with this illustration. In America, we have something called chain stores. Target, Walmart, they're the big chain stores. Um, but they also have restaurants or chains like McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, Burger King, Arby's are chains. In other words, there's, they're popping up all over the place. That means that the corporate headquarters or whoever the corporation is, they supply the product. You know, when you go all across America, you go into a Walmart, it's the same stuff, right? Great value, they're cheap, you know, their food. When you go to Target, you, you got the same product. When you go to Chick-fil-A, you know, you don't go to Chick a Chick-fil-A in Ohio and say, yeah, I'd like a Big Mac, please, with some curly fries. No, that you know the product. But I've heard, I've heard my father-in-law, and I've come to realize this is so true, that ch a chain is only as good as its individual manager or proprietor, right? You've probably seen some chains, some individual stores that are run beautifully. And then you've been to others. There's, there's a lot of chains. There's a lot of stores today where the, the workers couldn't care less. You ever go to a restaurant or a, a checkout line and the, the teller person that's ringing you up, just you stepping in front of them and, and putting an order in just ruined their day. You ever have that? I mean, they're like, you have just ruined their day. Life is miserable. They've got an attitude and you are the problem. That's how they look at it. I've had that happen. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm paying your, I'm the one that's paying your bills because I'm buying this product, but they haven't got that concept. That's why I love one particular food chain um, has, has thought of everything. I, you know, good management, not, again, each one, it's the individual manager, but they've trained them so uh, even, you know, which restaurant I'm talking about, where you say thank you or anything, and they say, it is my pleasure. Right? My daughter worked there. And she, I, I got to find out that not all, you know, they have to say that. And I know that not all of them want to say that. I know that some of them are saying, it's my pleasure, and they're saying, you jerk, maybe, you know, like the, the Karens that are in the world. Forgive me, any Karens here. But you get the idea that the individual, those, those, they're proprietors. They don't own the store. All the Chick-fil-A's around here, they, they don't own it. There's individual proprietors, and that management answers to corporate, and it doesn't belong to them. They manage it. They control it. They dispense it. They dispose of it. They bailiff it, you know, all those terms, because it's not theirs. They're just managing it. Now, you and I are managers. Here's the thing. When you look at Luke 16, and when you get a chance to really go through that verse by verse, Everything with stewardship or management presumes accountability and responsibility to the owner. Someday, you and I are going to give an account of our management of our stewardship. Let me say this. Please understand that stewardship, management, whether it's us giving uh, our finances to missions or to a church, or even giving our time to serve the Lord and go on a missions trip, that none of these things are designed to merit our salvation. 
Understand that. Stewardship is not, I want to make God happy so He lets me into heaven. Stewardship and salvation are two different issues. What do we have to do to be saved? What do we have to give to God? Nothing. We cannot. If we had to give something to God, we could never do it. Instead, we have to receive something from God. Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed His blood, paid the penalty, and so many people are trying to earn their way to heaven. Paul said this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know that for years as a young child, I was convinced the way you get to heaven is you got to go to church, you got to do good, you got to do all the uh, ordinances or sacraments of your church, you got to try, hopefully your good outweighs your bad, and if you really are good enough, then you'll be able to go up there and say, Lord, you need to let me into heaven because I did all this. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You know how you get to heaven? By coming to God empty-handed and accepting what Jesus did on our behalf. You're tithing or not tithing. You're giving to the church or not giving to the church. You're going to church. You're being religious. None of that earns you a place in heaven. Because you could never be good enough. You can never give, you can never give enough to buy salvation. Jesus gave his life. And now we either just take it as a free gift or we don't get it. So understand, as we talk about giving, and I pray, I hope you will pray about your part in giving to missions for the next year if you understand the concept of stewardship, and only then. But understand, whatever you give has nothing to do with your salvation. Just like going to church has nothing to do with your salvation. It's all Jesus dying on the cross for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to understand this idea of stewardship that, and management, that you own it all. And uh, Father, we are just the reason we give voluntarily is just because you've given us everything. You own 100%. You've, you've given us 100%. You've given us our health so that we can work and get an income to provide our needs. Uh, but it belongs to you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all to have this right attitude, a stewardship mentality, and uh, help us understand, Father, and just continue as you have so faithfully, just continue to meet the needs of this fellowship. Uh, even, Lord, more that we can expand and uh, have other pastors come on and um, just expand our ministry into other ministries to be able to, uh, preach the gospel and reach more people. And we'll thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.